You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Right, and so I think the point of these questions is God was demonstrating to Job that only he was in complete control. Job had all these ideas that, that he thought this shouldn't be happening and that shouldn't happen. I don't understand what's going on. And God wanted Job to know that he was the one that was in complete control because Job, whether it was intentional or not, the complaints that he had or the questioning that he had, he questioned the authority of God, the decision-making of God. And so I think what we see from God here on some level is God's setting the record straight and he's letting Job know who's in control. And so God speaks, and, and he, he puts on full display his mercy and his care for his creation, as well as his power and his purpose in all things that he does. And so what we're going to see tonight is some more questions, but God's going to demand an answer from Job, and he's going to double down on this comparison between his authority, between God's authority, and Job's. And I think the one direction that I'm going to go tonight, I'm, I'm, my attempt is to take something that could conceivably be perceived as difficult and try to make it very simple and I think the main point that that we see in 40 or 41 or that we could see that I want to get across is we got to be careful with how we deal with God we got to be careful in how we deal with God I think that's one of the main things that God's trying to get across to Job and so let's let's start here in chapter 40 and we'll read down part of the way it says the Lord answered Job Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. We're going to stop right there and, and take a look at that before we move on. But we get to the beginning of this chapter, and we, we encounter a break. There's a break in the questioning. And what we see, I think, is God puts Job in his place. It's almost like a checkpoint to where God's looking in on Job to see if he's gotten his point across. Did, have you gotten my message? It's almost like God's saying to Job, listen, Job, do you still feel the same way? I mean, you've heard me speak now. You've heard me ask you question after question. Do you still feel the same way? And we've seen God speak about his control and his purpose in the creation of the earth and his dealing with the creatures of the earth. And now God wants to know if Job feels as though he's in a position to correct God. I just talked to you, Job, about all the things that I do. And now do you still feel like you're in a position to correct me? The specific question he asks is, will the one who contends with me, Job, will you correct me? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? And I think that's an interesting statement. 
because we can read that and from a distance we can we can look down on job and recognize the folly of his ways i mean it's real easy for us to see that and say who does job think he is to question god who's job to propose a better plan to god those are very valid questions, and I think it's the, it's, we've got the right to have that point of view. But what's interesting is that we routinely are just as guilty of the same thing that Job is. We're guilty of questioning the ways of God. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, how many times have you asked the simple question, why me? Something happens to you, and you say, why me? We, we've all done that. We've all done that multiple times. And when we do that, what we fail to recognize is in that moment when we say, why me, we're questioning the sovereignty of God. That's what we're doing. And I think that's the point that God's trying to make here. And he, what he does is he, he moves on and he backs Job into a corner by demanding an answer. He says, let him who argues with God, again, that's you, Job, let him who argues with God give me an answer. That's, that's God's way of saying to Job, all right, go ahead, big boy. <laughs> You're the one with a better idea, a better plan. So since I'm the one that's going about this all wrong, why don't you tell me the correct way? I mean, that's, that's the translation there. That's what's going on. And we know... That's a ridiculous statement. And as we read, we quickly realize that at the heart of the matter, Job understands that's a ridiculous statement as well. And we can see that in his response. He says, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? And here, here's the reality of that situation that you, you can see in multiple places throughout Scripture. The majesty and the power of God has that effect on people. The majesty and the power of God has this effect on people. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see a similar response from the prophet Isaiah. He finds himself before God, and this is his response. Woe is me, for I'm ruined. Another translation is, I must be silent. Woe is me, I have to be silent, because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. He's standing before the presence of God, and Isaiah quickly realized who he was in comparison to who God was. That's the same thing that we see from Job. Right here in this moment, not to mention all of the questioning that God has put on Job for the last two chapters. Job realizes who he is. Job wanted to think that he had it all figured out. And again, you fall into the same boat. I fall into the same boat, right? I'm a smart individual. You're a smart individual. We can do this. We got it. We can control this. I mean, that's what we go through our day thinking. But when we come to recognize who God is, we quickly realize there's nothing further from the truth. And what happens is when you come to that realization your mouth begins to shut real quick, real quick, once you realize who you are. Who, who's, here's a perfect example. And again, I'm as guilty as anyone in the room. But who in here has ever had the thought, you know what, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask this question. 
I mean, everybody in here has had that thought. And I don't want to break your heart, but guess what? Newsflash. You ain't asking the question. You're not going to ask the question. What you're going to do is you're going to worship. Period. End of story. Because there's no other appropriate response when you stand before the one true creator God. You're not going to go, hey, just a second. About that. You're not going to do it. You're going to fall to your face and you're going to worship. It's, it's interesting here, too. There's so much we could dive into in these two chapters. But again, I'm trying to keep it simple. But there's something else going on, I think. It, it says here, Job says, I'm so insignificant, how can I answer you? And then pay attention to this next statement. I place my hand over my mouth. So Job tells us he's taken his hand and he places it over his mouth. That's very interesting. Why would he do that? I think there's a lesson there. In that one simple sentence, there's a lesson for us. Job questioned his predicament multiple times. He didn't like it. He didn't like what happened to him. He didn't like what happened to his family, and neither would you. I mean, if we trade places, you're not going to like it either. But God was using it for a purpose. So why would Job place his hand over his mouth? I think here's the answer. Because his natural fleshly inclination was to speak up, to question, and to ask God that question, why me? Or to even propose a better idea. And yet now, as he finds himself before the presence of God, he knows that's not the right course of action. But knowing himself, he had to be intentional about what he knew to be right. So he had to take that extra step in covering his own mouth with his hand because he knew who he was. He knew who he was at his core. Everything inside of him him wanted to question. So he had to physically take his hand and put it over his mouth. Shut up, boy. Put it over his mouth because he knew who he was. Our fleshly nature wants to do the same thing. It wants to question But we have to be intentional about pursuing the things of God. All things, all things, Jesus should serve as our example in all things. And we see this very same thing going on. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus prays to God. He's in the garden. And he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Why would Jesus pray that? Why would Jesus pray that? Because he was completely human. And in his humanity, he knew what was coming down the road, and he didn't want any part of it. He didn't want any part of it. But what comes next is crucial. He goes on and he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's just another way to say, I take my hand, and I put it over my mouth, and I'm going to do what you ask me to do. That's the key. Jesus didn't want to suffer. And I know that I don't want to suffer, and you don't want to suffer. But Jesus knew that God's will was of primary importance. Not my will, his will. He trusted God the Father because of the relationship that he had with him. So when we encounter difficult moments, I think in that one short sentence, there's a big lesson there. When we encounter difficult moments, do we begin to question or we place our hand over our mouth and continue on with the thought of yet not as I will, but as you will. There's lots of times where we'd be way better off if we take our hand and put it over our own mouth and just trust. It's interesting that God 
doubles down here. You know, Job, I mean, what Job says is quality. I'm insignificant. How can I answer you? I'm even going to go to the next step and place my hand over my mouth so I don't say anything stupid. I've already spoken once. It didn't work out. I've spoken twice. There's nothing for me to add. I'm going to shut up now. But God basically tells Job, listen, you're not going to get off that easy. We're not done here. We're not done. And again, we see, then the Lord answered Job from the storm or the whirlwind. And he says, get ready to answer me like a man. Job's response is correct. There's nothing for him to say. God's made his point very clear. Job has a role to play, and it isn't to question God. But God's not going to let Job off the hook just yet. And he continues to pour it on by demanding an answer from Job. When I question you, boy, you're going to inform me. That's what's going on here. It feels to me, as I read, there's a parent-child dynamic going on here. How many of you have stood before your parents at some point in your life, hopefully when you were younger, but how many of you have stood before your parents and your parents just pouring it on and continues to ask questions and demand answers when the reality was there's not anything to say? You made a poor decision, it's that simple, but the parent keeps pounding it on. That's what's going on here to some degree. God wants to make it crystal clear that Job's desire to question is wrong, and instead his desire and motivation should be to trust. That's what we see in the next question he asks. He says, would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty just to justify yourself? Those two questions get to the heart of the matter. What was Job's motivation? What's going on beneath the surface? Yeah, the, the Sunday school easy answer is, this isn't fun, I don't want to deal with it. You took my family from me, I'm in pain, you took all my possessions, I don't want to deal with it. That's, that's on the surface. But underneath the surface, the greater issue is, Job didn't think he deserved it. I don't deserve any of that. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know the things I've done? And so as a result, Job was willing to declare himself innocent, and in doing so, it implied that God was guilty. Because if I don't deserve this, then what are you doing? What are you doing to me? So God is asking Job, Job, seriously, are you going to throw me under the bus just to get out of this? And I can just imagine it's not in here. Don't we leave here saying Dave said this was in the Bible? But it, I can almost imagine God saying, after all the things I've done for you, after all the things I've done for you, you're willing to throw me under the bus. And what we have revealed here is a great problem found in our human nature. We're always looking out for number one. Always looking out for me. And we fail to recognize that as a sinner, it's not popular, we fail to recognize that as a sinner, God owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. Job felt like his actions and his righteousness deserve better. But as sinners, Scripture clearly tells us that we deserve nothing but God's wrath. Job's perspective is wrong. And ultimately, the wrong perspective caused him to deal with God in a wrong manner. And we're guilty of doing the same. But what we fail to realize is that God's mercy and His grace abound. It's plentiful. It's all around us because we don't deserve anything and yet he still continues to bless us that's 
That made me think of the hymn. I love hymns. We should sing more hymns. That, you can put that on the record. Amen. We should sing more hymns. But Amen. the hymn, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. The fact that we're breathing right now in this moment is such a blessing. And regardless of the difficulties that we encounter, man, the opportunity that we have to spend eternity with our Creator by following Christ is enough reason to worship and be thankful. It doesn't matter what He throws my way. He's given me the opportunity to spend eternity with Him if I choose to follow Him. Just follow Him and trust. There's plenty of people outside this building, and there may be some in here that want to spend their whole life questioning and burning in hell rather than just to trust, deal with some difficulty, and spend eternity with the creator of the universe. What, I mean, what a blessing. But how do we deal with God? Again, I think that's the major emphasis of these two chapters. How do I deal with God? Am I willing to throw him under the bus just to try to justify myself? Or do I trust him completely and count the many blessings that he's given me that I don't deserve? God goes on to question Job some more and he emphasizes his power. And ultimately what he's asking Job is, Job, can you handle these things? Can you handle the things I can? Because I want to see it. Because Job's claimed to have a better plan. And now God wants to put him on the spot again, just like the parent child. Okay, all right, let's do it. Can you handle it? He says, adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. In other words, he's saying, okay, you're the deity? You're the deity? Get your deity clothes on. Get dressed for the part, son, because I want to see this. Show me your majesty. Show me your splendor. Where is it? You talk a big game. I want to see it. Can you handle the wicked like I can? Can you put them in their place? Do you have control over life and death? Show me what you've got. I mean, maybe it's a little crass, but it's almost like, Job, I'm sick of hearing you talk. Like, I want to see you do something. There's some heavy accusations that you've got. Show me what you have. Because if you can, Job, I'm man enough to tell you that I'll concede. Maybe you do have a better plan. Maybe you can deliver yourself. I'll step aside, show me. But the reality is that you don't know half of what's going on. And you think you got it all figured out. And Job, here's the real secret. You know that. You know it. You just need to admit it. That I alone am the creator. I alone am the deliverer. Me, not you. So he goes on and we're going to see... Two beasts that he talks about, Behemoth and Leviathan. Starting in verse 15 of, of Job 40, he says, Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you. That's a very, very interesting line right there we'll come back to. He eats grass like cattle. Look at the strength of his back and the power in the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. The hills yield food for him, while all sorts of wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, hiding in the protection of marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Though the river rages, Behemoth is unafraid. He remains confident, even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth. Can anyone capture him while he looks on? Or pierce his nose with snares? Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook? Or tie his tongue down with a rope? 
Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain for him or divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. You will remember the battle and never repeat it. Any hope of capturing him proves false. Does a person not collapse at the very sight of him? No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? Who confronted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I cannot be silent about his limbs, his power, and his graceful proportions. Who can strip off his outer covering? Who can penetrate his double layer of armor? Who can open his jaws, surrounded by those terrifying teeth? His pride is in his row of scales, closely sealed together. One scale is so close to another that no air can pass between them. They're joined to one another, so closely connected they cannot be separated. His snorting flashes with light, while his eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flaming torches shoot from his mouth. Fiery sparks fly out. Smoke billows from his nostrils, as from a boiling pot or burning reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze, and flames pour out of his mouth. Strength resides in his neck, and dismay dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, solid as metal and immovable. His heart is as hard as a rock, as hard as a lower millstone. When Leviathan rises, the mighty are terrified. They withdraw because of his thrashing. The sword that reaches him will have no effect, nor will a spear, dart, or arrow. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotted wood. No arrow can make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. A club is regarded as stubble, and he laughs at the sound of a javelin. His undersides are jagged pot shards, spreading the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths seethe like a cauldron. He makes the sea like an ointment jar. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had gray hair. He has no equal on earth, a creature devoid of fear. He surveys everything that is haughty. He is king over all the proud beasts. So there's a transition here into the latter half of chapter 40 and all of 41. God's going to make an additional point using these two giant beasts, behemoth and leviathan. Now, here's the trap. The trap is we could spend a lot of time hypothesizing or guessing what these beasts are. Are they dinosaurs, dragons, or something else? I think if you spend your time getting caught up in that, you're going to miss the point of what's going on. Sure sounds like a dragon to me, but we could chase all that and miss the point of what's really going on that I don't want to mess with. Here's the deal. Both of these beasts demand respect. That's the main idea. They both demand respect. And if that's the case, then how much more respect does God, the creator of the world, demand? That's the message that he's trying to get across to Job. And immediately God makes a comparison. I find this humorous and funny that God makes a comparison between Behemoth and Job. He draws Job's attention to Behemoth, a giant creature that Job knows of and more than likely he's dealt with or seen. There is no, what are you talking about? Job knows what he's talking about. It's a real thing. But what does God say about this behemoth initially? This is what he says. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you. Which I made along with you. That's a slap in the face. 
That's a slap in the face. There's two things going on here. One, it's a call on Job to remember, hey, I'm the creator. I'm the creator. Look, Job, I did that. You didn't. That's all me. And the second point is, Job, I made this creature along with you. How do you compare? How do you stack up against that guy? I mean, that's what's going on. He says, look how strong he is. Look how large he is. He's the foremost of my works. Now, that's an interesting statement because we're diving into Genesis, and it makes it very clear that humanity was God's greatest creation. Because if you look at the creation account, you'll notice that when God creates man, he describes it as very good. Every other creation is good, but man is very good. So man's the pinnacle. But here, I think God's pointing out this behemoth, this is a remarkable creation. And there's many qualities that behemoth has. Job, you ain't got them. You don't have them. How do you stack up? Behemoth is confident. He can't be captured. He's unafraid. Now, Job, let's just take a minute and let's compare that with your recent situation. Behemoth isn't afraid but look at you can you say the same for yourself i mean just a little affliction and look at what you displayed look at what was revealed there's something different there now let's take a look at leviathan look how mighty he is can you contain or control him now i think there's another something here that's very very fascinating that we could spend probably a whole sermon on but if you look at verse 4 of chapter 41, he's talking about Leviathan and he says, Job, will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? I think that's an easy one-off. Like you read that and you just keep trucking. But I think there's something going on there. It's interesting to me. It's possible maybe God's drawn a comparison between God and mankind and mankind and Leviathan. Right? Because it's possible we look at ourselves in such a lofty way, and yet what? God can make a covenant with us and demand our obedience. God has made a covenant with mankind and demands their obedience. And yet mankind cannot do the same with a simple beast. I can't strike a covenant with that monster and demand his obedience. He's not going to listen to me. And yet God's done the same thing with us. I'm going to demand your obedience. As if that wasn't enough and didn't, and, and didn't put Job in his place. God goes on. If, if anybody ever tells you that, that God does not display humor, they're wrong. They're wrong. Because look at the next statement. God goes on to ask Job, Hey, is Leviathan a pet for your kids? Can you make him a pet for your kids? And your kids see that and say, Daddy, can we take that home? I mean, how does that go over? No, he's most certainly not. Mankind, he says, mankind can't even contain him long enough to sell him or trade him. I know you. I know you, mankind. If you can make a dollar, you're going to try to make a dollar. Good luck trying to sell or trade that thing. It's not going to allow you to do it. In either situation, God makes it very clear that any attempt to do so, he says, go ahead, try to make him a pet. Go ahead, try to kill him. 
or go ahead, try to capture him and sell him and make a dollar. And he says, you will remember the battle and never repeat it. Like, go ahead and try that. It's not going to work out well. There's no hope of capturing this beast. Just the mere sight of him produces immense fear. You can't contain him. He demands respect. This is the point that God reinforces in verse 10. No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? This is the whole point of chapter that latter half of chapter 40 and all of 41. You're talking about these two monsters. That's the whole point. No one is ferocious enough to rouse either one of these beasts. Who then can stand against me? If Leviathan demands respect, if Behemoth demands respect, if you deal with them carefully, very carefully, then how much more careful should you be with me? That's the point. And he doubles down here on the characteristics of Leviathan. He says, you don't believe me, Job? Let's go down the list. Look at his power. Look at his double layer of armor. Look at flames that come from his mouth. Look at his immense strength. He's not fearful of anything. All your weapons are useless against him. There's no equal on earth, and he's king. I believe also that both of these beasts are paralleling who God is. Except God is far more than either of these beasts are. It's a powerful and mighty animal, both of these, that I believe did exist. Job knew they existed and recognized what God was speaking about. But God had a greater point than simply just drawing Job's attention to creation. There's a bigger point there. God was reminding Job of who he was, the creator. But more importantly, the creator that exemplifies the qualities of both of these beasts times a thousand. Job respected those beasts. He knew who they were. He treaded carefully around them because he knew what they were capable of, and yet he didn't treat God with the same respect. Instead of respect and trust, Job was quick to question and doubt what God was doing. That's a point God's trying to make. Why do you trip? Why do you walk on your tiptoes around both of these monsters, and yet you don't recognize who I am and what I'm capable of? If they demand respect, how much more respect do I demand? That's the point. That's the point in both of these chapters. How do we, how do we treat God? Are we quick to question? Are we quick to look out for our own best interests? Or do you recognize, recognize who God is and place our complete trust in Him? How, how does that, more specifically, what, how, does that, how does that impact what we do, how we think? i got four things for you, real quick. The first is, do we have, do I have, do you have a biblically correct perception of ourselves? Because we've got to have that. Do I recognize who I am? Or do I feel like Joe felt and felt like I'm worthy of so much more. I shouldn't be treated this way. I shouldn't have to deal with this. Why would you ask me to do this? No, 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 no. I'm not in a position to question. He's a creator. I'm the created. The created. The TV doesn't tell me what channel to turn it to. You with me? I mean, I, I say you go there. 
The Braves are on this channel. Now, <laughs> who are we to question God? Do we have a biblically correct perception of ourselves? The second thing is, do we intentionally trust? If I know who I am, am I willing to put my hand over my mouth? Am I willing to intentionally turn my head and move my attention from here to here? Because I know who I am. Because I know who I am. I, I mean, just, I'll just give you a short example, simple example. I know who I am. One of the greatest blessings of my life was being raised in a home where alcohol was not present. Was not present. Never around it. And we can argue about the appropriateness of alcohol. Can you use it? Can you not use it? I know who I am. I know how much I like soda. I know how much I like sports. I know how much I can be drawn to certain things. I'd say if I went down that road, it could get ugly fast. Because if, like, if I liked alcohol like I like Mountain Dew, I would be the best alcoholic on the planet. I know who I am. So I have to be intentional about what I do. Do I intentionally trust God with every area of my life to the point that I'm mature enough spiritually to constrain myself? Because it's not about, you turn on the TV and turn on the news. It's not about, this makes me feel good, or this feels right. Because I know what my natural inclination is, but I also know what the Word says. And so I, it's not okay for me to chase the natural inclination, because the natural inclination is a sinful inclination. So I have to physically manhandle myself and turn myself in the right direction. That's intentionally trusting God. To the point that maybe I don't even understand it. Nowhere, in, nowhere, nowhere in here does it say, you have to understand what I'm asking you to do for you to do it. No, it doesn't tell you that. It says, do it. Trust me. And in order to do that, I've got to be intentional about my trust. The third thing is, do I recognize that God owes me nothing? Zero. Because when I can get to that point where I understand that God owes me nothing then I can really see all the ways that he's blessed me. But if I feel like I'm owed something, then I'm never going to recognize those blessings because I don't see them as blessings. This is what I deserve. I don't deserve anything. He doesn't owe me anything. And the last thing is just the main point of, of both of these chapters. Do I honor God with the respect that he deserves and demands? Do I recognize who he is? Do I recognize what he's capable of? Because if I do, if I truly do, then I'm going to give him the respect and the honor that he deserves and demands. But if I'm going around with my focus on me, then I'm going to be real quick and it's going to be real easy to just dis discard who God is. So do I have a biblically correct perception of me? Do I intentionally trust God? Do I recognize that God owes me nothing? And do I honor God with the respect that he deserves and he demands? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just this study. And as we move through this book, as we're reaching the, the final chapter next week, Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to see all that you have given us in this book, all that you've spoken to us, that, yes, that we can use these things as we 
deal with difficult situations and tragedy. But Lord, as we, just as we can use it to deal with our day-to-day life, Lord, I think so much of this book has just drawn our attention to who you are. It's not about who I am. It's about who you are. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be oriented to who you are as we make decisions every day with what we're going to do with our life. Lord, I pray that everything that we do would bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.